Artificial intelligence and machine learning, you've probably heard a lot about those topics right now. Artificial intelligence, the new battleground for technology giants like Amazon, Google, and Apple. Now we wonder what artificial intelligence, AI, and machine learning will do to our businesses, our economies, and our lives as we know them. You know, AI is one of the most important things humanity is working on. It's more profound than, I don't know, electricity or fire. But how do these technologies actually work? And aside from recognizing my face in my friend's photos and allowing me to set a timer by yelling at a cylinder on my counter, how can these technologies be harnessed to actually make the world a better, safer place? What are aid and development organizations doing with these technologies right now? And what lies ahead? Computer, can you answer me that? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. All right, well, we're not quite there yet. But these are the questions we're going to be asking in this episode of No Place Like Home, a podcast series by the Global Program for Resilient Housing within the World Bank. I'm your host, David Cavell. Yeah, so machine learning is this new buzzword. It feels though it's, it sounds much more complicated than it is. That's Sarah Antos, a data scientist at the World Bank. When we talk about machine learning, we're essentially talking about teaching computers to find things and label things for us. I sat down with her and asked her to explain to someone who doesn't know much about machine learning, like, say, me, what exactly machine learning is and how it works. Take Netflix, for example. When you go into your Netflix account and it recommends movies or TV shows, how does right, it know great that? great British baking show or whatever. Exactly. It's saying, Sarah, you would like to watch this movie about how they create sushi in Japan, right? And mm-hmm. it, great. Yeah, great documentary. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so how, do, how does it know that? Where, where's it getting it from? Well, it knows it because it sees the pattern in my past viewing history that I tend to watch all of these different probably cooking documentaries, traveling documentaries, movies that are set in Southeast Asia. And so it puts this pattern together and predicts that this is another show that I would like to watch. Huh. I mean, you just brought up Netflix, but it sounds like this is technology that's being used by lots of industries in lots of different contexts. Absolutely. So it's by no means just a Netflix thing. We see machine learning being used across the spectrum. We see doctors relying upon it to identify abnormalities for skin cancer. So predicting skin cancer better than the the naked eye. Um, Think of self-driving cars. I mean, how do cars know that there's a stop sign in front of them? because it has an algorithm that's taught it. This is what a stop sign looks like. And when you see a stop sign, you need to break. It's a very simple concept, but it's being applied in many different fields. Huh. Well, one question I have is, so, you know, you can use an algorithm, but the mm-hmm. computer's going to get things wrong, right? Like, how do you teach a computer to get better, to recognize more stop signs or to, to do whatever task it is faster and better? So the whole idea of teaching the computer is a very iterative process. And by that, I mean, it predicts what it thinks you're trying to identify, but then you have to look at the results, correct it, and relabel things that it's gotten wrong, and then feed that back into it and teach it again. Hmm. So it's a, it's a bit of a cycle. But as soon as you get it going and you get it building and the accuracy level's higher, it's really impressive what it's able to do.
Okay, so machine learning is clearly a powerful technology with lots of potential implications. But after all, this is the Resilient Housing Podcast. So what can it do for us in the world of development and resilient housing? Good, and you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Oh, good. Good, 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 good. Uh, my name is Farid Matuk. I was former head of the Census Bureau of Peru. The first step to any kind of program to make homes and cities safer is gathering the who, what, where information about a given area. Who lives where and how many people live with them. That's why for governments and aid organizations, getting accurate census information is critical. But gathering that data, as Farid explains, can be a real challenge. Well, for example, in the case of Peru that you try to do in one day, you need to have around half a million people on the streets knocking doors. And the training of those people is a nightmare. In the other side, is that if you do it three months, you may have problems that people is moving in three months. You cannot have people lock in for three months. Yeah, you, you have a trade-off. You do fast, but the error could be in the skills of the person who knocked the door. And if you do it long, so the person is very skilled asking questions, but the data may change from day one to day 90. This is where Sarah, the data scientist we met before, comes in. Because she thinks that with machine learning, getting the information we need doesn't have to be this hard. Advancements in machine learning, and particularly remote sensing techniques, have made it so that we can create a much more detailed baseline information. Information that gives us a sense of where people are living without having to knock on a single door. We now have all kinds of data at our fingertips. For example... We can now use drones or satellites, as well as car-mounted cameras, to systematically image cities. Then, you can use machine learning algorithms to start recognizing patterns or trends. And with this information, we can generate estimations that in the past would have taken ages, but we can now do in the fraction of the time. All right. We'll come back to Sarah and her image-generating cars in just a minute. But now, I want to introduce you to Marianne Fay. She's the country director for World Bank offices in Bolivia, Chile, Ecuador, and Peru. And in that role, she's thought a lot about the importance of resilient housing and the role that machine learning could play in it. There's 17 sustainable development goals that were adopted by the UN General Assembly in 2015, I think. Now, if you look at these sustainable goals, a number of them are end poverty, end hunger, promote health and education. Frankly, it's hard to achieve these kinds of things without right. safe housing, right? Okay. But there's also a specific goal. It's goal 11. And goal 11 is about making cities and human uh, settlements more sustainable, more inclusive, and more resilient. And within that, there is a very specific target about resilient housing. So it sounds like resilient housing is a priority both for the UN and are you saying for the World Bank? Well, it is. I mean, the role of the World Bank is to promote the well-being of individuals, right? Fight poverty, promote well-being and welfare. And again, how do you achieve that without safe and resilient housing? It's sort of at the core of human dignity, but also at the core of human safety. And so how do you think, what role do you think new technology uh, and machine learning could play in reaching, well, specifically the, the resilient housing goal and as part of the sustainable development goals? Well, I think 
there's two ways of thinking about it. You know, is it going to help us measure? Is it going to help us implement? Now, in terms of measurement, it's very clear that new technologies are helping us develop baselines where we've never even been able to dream about having a baseline. So that, that's already a major achievement. Now, once you have a baseline, you can also measure progress. And, you know, what they say, what, what doesn't get measured doesn't get funded or doesn't get paid attention to. So I think <laughs> right, that's right. really critical. Now, one other thing which I think will be critical for the implementation is that with this kind of new data, we are able to identify priorities and hotspots. Now, remember, none of our client countries, not even the U.S., has enough money to address all of the needs. So right. being able to set up priority, identify where, how to roll out your interventions, etc., I think is a huge element of success, a huge key to success. So Marianne just gave us the bank's perspective about why this work matters, but I wanted to sit down with someone and understand exactly what they're looking for and what they do with the data they collect. So I asked Sarah to show me how she and her team analyze the photos they take when they send cars into a city. So I sat down with her right after she'd gotten the results from a recent field expedition to Peru. To me, this looks like a pretty typical city street in Peru. But Sarah sees more. Sarah, thanks for having me in your office. Yeah, of course. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome right. to my huge screens. <laughs> I know. This is really impressive. Uh, and I like that you've pulled up a, a beautiful picture. You just got back from Peru, right? Exactly. Yeah. Basically, was driving around Lima for a few days. All right. So what are we looking at? So here we have an image from Breña. It's a district in Lima, Peru. And basically, when we get back from the field, we stitch these photos together into this 360 image. And you can start zooming along the streets, just as if you were in Google Street View. Oh, yeah. This looks like how I'd figure out how to like drive to my in-laws place or something. Exactly. What you see here are many different buildings, mostly residential. And for cities that experience a lot of earthquakes, one of the things that we're trying to identify is buildings that could possibly collapse during an earthquake. And these types of buildings tend to be buildings with large windows, large openings, particularly on the bottom floor, maybe buildings that are very tall. You see a building down here at the end of the block. It oh, doesn't down. have... Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I see that. Yeah, the one that really sticks out. I mean, the building, all of its neighbors are lower. And so if you can imagine the earth starting to shake, this is a building that we might be more concerned with. So... The machine learning can actually identify buildings with these type of characteristics. It doesn't exactly replace what a seismic engineer would do, but it helps to facilitate and identify buildings that should be examined in more depth by people in the field. Okay, so if I understand, what you're saying is the engineers help you figure out what to look for, and then it's the cameras that help you spot it faster. Yeah, precisely. So the engineers are helping us to train these algorithms. They're saying these are the physical characteristics that we first identify when we're doing a rapid assessment. And so these are the characteristics you should be teaching algorithms to identify. Got it. I want to mention that it's not just earthquakes and it's not just these tall buildings. Oh, what else are you looking for? In the Caribbean, we're doing analysis of rooftops for retrofitting. In Peru, we're also looking at property taxation, because from the street, you can start seeing the use of the building, what's happening in front of it. You know, is it a shop? Is it a bodega? Or is it purely residential? 
in Mexico, we're trying to identify highly underserved populations in Oaxaca, and so areas that are fairly remote um, and not receiving any assistance. So these type of other attributes of buildings, the algorithm is also taking a look at. Got it. So it's like the camera is going to go down the street and take the picture no matter what. It's then up to us to decide what we want to do with the data. So it's actually really flexible, it sounds like. Yeah, and you can add other data to this analysis. For example, the property taxation that I mentioned, if we add a layer of geocoded taxation records, we can then say, hey, these number of people are in this building and this is how much tax they're paying. I wish I could search for houses and apartments this way. <laughs> like in Peru, this technology is going to help countries around the world rebuild and retrofit homes before it's too late. But we've also been talking about some other potential uses for this technology. Companies in almost every industry are figuring out ways to use machine learning to improve their products and solve some long-standing challenges. One of those companies is Mapillary. They specialize in street-level imaging, and I talked to Janine Young about Mapillary's work in this field and how it's helping disaster relief efforts worldwide. So it's probably useful to start with what Mapillary actually does. Uh, we are a startup focused on extracting geospatial data from street-level imagery. So everyone's probably very familiar with Street View. So what we do with Street View is that we apply computer vision technology, which is a, a kind of artificial intelligence, to the Street View so that we can actually use machines to understand what's actually in the images. So from the human eye, one could look at a street view and say, oh, look, um, you know, there's a traffic light over here or there's um, windows in this house over here. What we're trying to do is to automate all of this by teaching machines how to see what's actually in the street view so that that data can be used for geospatial work. Over time, we've expanded the sorts of things that we can detect from our imagery. So today, what our algorithms can do is uh, we can detect 152 classes of objects. So that means um, not just things like traffic signs, but also things like utility poles um, and uh, fire hydrants and um, street uh, trash cans. So all the types of objects that you can imagine seeing on the street. And today we have the world's leading algorithms and machine learning models for street scenes. So anytime, for example, there is um, a hurricane uh, or an earthquake, there's a slew of people all over the world who are very motivated to help. And one way they can do that is by quickly creating maps of the disaster area so that help can reach uh, the first responders more easily. So a really good example of this is uh, during, uh, after the hurricane season uh, last summer, the American Red Cross, which has used us quite a bit at this point, so uh, they've got the process down pat. What they do is they go to the ground with off-the-shelf cameras like GoPros or Garmin cameras, so cheap cameras, uh, and they're able to cover the ground really quickly and create street view with these types of relatively affordable devices and do this very quickly so that folks all over the world from their couches in front of their computers can use that street level imagery to start mapping out what uh, the terrain looks like after a disaster so that the first, again, the first responders can go in there and do their jobs more easily with better maps. And really, we're just scratching the surface of the ways in which machine learning is going to change how aid and development organizations do their work. Take Facebook, which is using machine learning to help create better and more accurate maps and data sets for areas affected by natural disasters. 
To learn more about that and the ways that machine learning has grown as a technology in recent years, I called Saikat Basu, an engineer at Facebook who specializes in this technology. I am Saikat Basu. I am a research scientist in the Facebook Maps team. I would say machine learning has certainly made a huge progress in recent years. At Facebook, the way we are trying to leverage this new technology is to build smarter tools and data sets using it. As part of our spatial data initiatives, we are using the power of deep learning to detect a multitude of features from high-resolution satellite images, which can then be used for several interesting applications, like maps at scale or generating insights to help in disaster response or even humanitarian aid planning. So like machine learning is literally everywhere and we are trying to use it as much as possible. I asked Saikot if he could walk me through a specific example of how Facebook is using this technology and basically how this works. So yeah, this is about another research work which we published recently with collaboration with CrowdAI, where we generated insights to quantify the impact of natural disasters by detecting road and building features from pre- and post-disaster images. So as you can think, the same machine which was trained on an image pre-disaster will be able to detect roads and buildings in the images before the disaster. However, after the disaster, if you feed that same machine with a post-disaster image, it fails to detect those things. And then you realize which are the areas of maximal impact or maximum damage. And then that can be used for prioritizing rescue operations, disaster response, or also coordinate relief efforts, because you know that these are the areas of maximal impact. And finally, to get a bit of insight into the future of machine learning, we talked to Peter Rabley. He's an entrepreneur and technology expert at the Immediard Network. He tries to think through the pros and cons of every new technology that appears in the market. Although Peter, like others we've talked to, sees a lot of potential in machine learning, he also sounded a note of caution. Of course, with um, a lot of technology, it comes with huge upside, it all comes with a huge downside. So one of the things we are paying a lot of attention to is what are the negative implications for using this technology? Can machine learning be used for harm? Can they be used in pattern recognition of faces and IDs? Could that be used to surveil us? Can it, is it intrusive? And beyond any future concerns about privacy and security, Peter mentioned something that's affecting the world of development right now. It's about a growing digital divide. And it's actually playing out in the field of SDGs at the moment. The SDGs, this wonderful monitoring framework that we have, but yet realistically, there's not the money and capacity for countries to be able to establish and monitor against the SDGs. So even if we just use that as an example for now, this is a huge problem. And yet, on the other side, Facebook knows far more about the individual citizens in Zambia than the Zambian government does. And all that information is privately held and not available. So in theory, Facebook is in a better position to make policy decisions or know what Zambians want than the Zambian government. And inherently, there's a bit of a problem there. And the thing is, it's not going to get any better. In fact, it's probably going to accelerate with the power of the network effect that platforms give you. And so the question is, how can we look at balancing that inequality? Fortunately, Peter and the Omidyar Network are part of a group of people and organizations trying to do something about this problem. Part of what we're doing, we have a, actually a, 
a tech and society solutions lab that's looking at the ethical considerations of this new technology around artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the combination of all the available data sets that are out there and that technology platforms are leveraging. We see the huge upside, but we're also paying attention to the downside as well. We also talked about the future prospects of machine learning in the development and aid sectors. Everything from cool new technologies to science fiction gadgets. But when I asked him about the prospects that excited him the most, his answer surprised me. Some of the things are just back to basics. Um, How many citizens do we have? What services do they have? Uh, What services do we need to deliver? So what's the core function of of government? What's our purpose of government? Um, knowing your citizenry is is critical. I mean, it, it sounds obvious, but in many countries, the government simply doesn't always have enough information and data. So I think there's so much we can do on the basics. We sometimes get so carried away with the super cool things we might be able to do, but actually <laughs> it's going to help us solve the really, what American football fans call the blocking and tackling problems, the basic things that help you win the game. The bottom line is they're just really hard, dirty work. So if it helps us do the hard, dirty work better, maybe we'll get the simple stuff done and we can really apply the fancy stuff. But if we try to leap ahead to the fancy stuff all the time, I think we're absolving ourselves of, of what we have to do to solve the hard problems first. It's pretty remarkable if you think about it. In a few decades, we've gone from this to this. Hey Siri, what's the weather like tomorrow? Looks like nice weather coming up tomorrow. Up to 80 degrees. But technology alone can't solve all of our challenges. In the next episode, we're hitting the road. We're heading to Japan... And we're going to meet a bunch of housing ministers and people who work in housing authorities in countries around the world who do this work every day, who work to protect houses and protect the families that live in them. And we'll hear about the challenges they face and the opportunities they see to expand this work. Thanks for listening. This podcast was made possible with support from the GFDRR, Global Facility for Disaster Risk Reduction. It was produced by Sarah Antos, Luis Trevenio, Jackson Bierfeldt, and me, David Cabot. Sound designed by Jackson Bierfeldt of Bierfeldt Audio, LLC. Music from Blue Dot Sessions.